Well, it's good to look out and see quite a few visitors here this morning because I'm afraid with the uh, time change, maybe some of our regulars didn't get the memo uh, just looking around here. We're uh, missing some familiar faces out there, but uh, in any case, glad that you're here this morning. I hope the time we spend here together will be uh, beneficial for all of us who are here. If you have your Bible, you might want to open it up to the 130th Psalm. And that was where our scripture was read from a few moments ago. And that's where we'll be, uh, that's the, the text we'll be examining together for a few minutes this morning. Have you ever been stopped by a police officer for any reason at all? I'm sure that most of us have been pulled over at one point or another for some minor infraction, speeding. Uh, changing lanes without signaling, expired registration or inspection sticker, all of the above simultaneously, don't, don't ask. Um, hopefully, we all know that in those situations, you know, some people can become uh, hostile, even abusive. But not only is that not a Christian response, that's just really not, from a purely tactical standpoint, the best way to go. You'd be polite and respectful. You don't want to be like the fellow that I read about who was driving erratically. He was pulled over. And the police officer had him get out of the car, and he looked over him, and he said, Sir, I noticed that your eyes appear to be bloodshot. Have you been drinking? And the man was really indignant. And he said, Officer, I noticed that your eyes appear to be glazed. Have you been eating donuts? That's not something you want to say in that situation. There, there are any number of things we could put here. You know, don't, don't say, I, I'm sorry, Officer. I didn't realize my radar detector was unplugged. Or, uh, you know, hey, you must have been going 125 to keep up with me, am I right? Or, or don't wait until he comes up to the vehicle and look him over and say, huh, thought you were supposed to be in good shape to be a police officer. All of these, incidentally, uh, actual true stories that have happened to Bobby Rader over his career in law enforcement. He'll, he'll tell you all about them later. No, seriously, the, my point is, we recognize those are ludicrous. We would never use excuses like that to try to... Uh, extract ourselves from our difficulties. We can't get out of our infractions that way. But you know, we are just about that ridiculous when it comes to dealing with our wrongdoing before God. We're full of excuses for our wrongdoing or our sin. Or sometimes we want to justify ourselves and say that it's not really sin at all, that that's just your interpretation, or I'm not bound by that old book of rules. I, I'm reading things in a new way here. Seldom, if ever, do we want to just humble ourselves and repent and lay our sin down before the Lord. We like to blame others for our sins. But the truth is, we're all guilty. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Paul says, Romans chapter 3 and verse 23. It's the nature of our sinful pride that prevents us from humbling ourselves and repenting. I think of the story Jesus tells in Luke chapter 18, the tax collector, the Pharisee who go up to the temple to pray. 
We ought to be more like that tax collector. You remember that he won't even so much as lift his eyes up to heaven, but he beats his breast and he says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Instead, we're like that prideful Pharisee. We pray to God and tell him how lucky he is to have a servant like us. Lord, I am thankful that I am not as other men are. Extortioners, unjust, especially like that tax collector over there. The Proverbs writer tells us that that sort of pride goes before a fall. It leads ultimately to destruction. Now the right attitude to have when we're in sin, when we're confronted with our sin, is to cast ourselves upon the Lord. To admit that we are in need of His mercy and His grace. You know, in a lot of ways, even though there's some beautiful prayers recorded in Scripture, that prayer of the tax collector is the best prayer in all of the Bible, as simple as it is. Because we all need that forgiveness that only the Lord can offer. And in the 130th Psalm, we see what we might call the, the path to forgiveness. I want us to explore that together this morning for a few minutes. Uh, first of all, we see we need to cry out to God in the midst of our crises. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. The psalmist cries, out of the depths. What are the depths? We didn't coordinate on this this morning, but it's actually uh, fitting that Kelly's saying, Master the Tempest is raging, because that's really the idea we have in mind here. The depths refer literally to the deep places of the sea. And so figuratively, it can be used for troubles, misfortunes, even Sheol, that is death or the grave. So we're talking here about the powers of confusion, of chaos, of darkness, everything that fights against the powers of God. Uh, you might consider the similar language in the 69th Psalm, beginning in verse number 1. The psalmist writes, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there's no foothold. I've come into deep waters, and the flood sweeps over me. I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. The psalmist is in deep waters. He's sunk. He's submerged in chaos. We might say something like uh, in English, idioms. He's in a sea of troubles. Or he's in the pits, even. He's in way over his head. Spiritually, physically, emotionally. And so in the midst of his anguish, he cries. Now, we all cry. Maybe you're out there saying to yourself, no, I don't ever cry. But if that's true, you're a real outlier. Because research indicates, depending on what study you look at, on average, the average woman cries between 30 and 64 times every year. The average man cries between 7 and 16 times every year. 
And when women cry, it's typically for longer. They typically cry for six minutes on average, men two to three minutes. But my point here is not to compare who cries more often or who cries longer when they do cry. It's that we all cry. And those same studies reveal that it's typically for the same reasons. Sadness right there at the top of the list, but anxiety, anger, frustration, sympathy, fear. So it's not unusual that the psalmist would cry. But what's more telling is not that he cries, but that he cries out. And he not only cries out, he cries out to the Lord. He addresses him in the midst of his anxiety. The situation's a lot like that of Jonah. You remember Jonah's story. He's swallowed by the great fish, and it says in Jonah chapter 2, there from the fish's belly, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol, I cried. The psalmist is down in the depths. He's drowning. He's floundering. And there's no hope, no way for him to get himself out of this under his own power. And so he cries out to God, just like Jonah, throws himself completely on his mercy. That is exactly what we should do when we find ourselves in the midst of a crisis. Reach out. Cry out, call out to God with persistence, with passion. You're going to see a picture here. This is Johnson's Island, a Civil War prisoner of war camp located in western Lake Erie. There's a young Confederate sergeant named Horace Lurton who was captured during a raid to Ohio, and he was imprisoned here. And during the course of his imprisonment, he contracted tuberculosis. His mother came to visit him, and when she saw him, she was shocked at his condition. He was in such a dire state that if he didn't get out of prison, he was going to die. And so she did the only thing she knew to do. She went all the way to Washington, D.C., and appealed to the only person who had the power to help her, President Abraham Lincoln. And Lincoln was so touched by this mother's plea for her boy's life that he wrote a note to the commander of the garrison and it simply said, let the boy go home with his mother, A. Lincoln. Horace Lurton was released from prison. He recovered from his tuberculosis. He went on and he read the law. He became a successful attorney, eventually a judge. And finally, in 1909, he was appointed to the Supreme Court of the United States. All of those blessings from way down in the depths came about due to the persistent, passionate pleas of his mother to a good and kind leader. How much more can we depend on the good and kind and loving nature of our Heavenly Father? When we're down in the depths, let's cry out to God and let us keep crying out with passion, with persistence. The psalmist found that when he cried out, God listened. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. 
Now the depths could be any sort of trouble imaginable. We see them in other psalms standing in for, for illness, for persecution, for depression, for loneliness. But we see here the specific trouble of the psalmist. It's guilt. It's his iniquity, his sin. There might be any number of things that make us cry out to God in life. But we all need to be broken over sin. If we're never broken over sin, we'll never fall down at the feet of God. We'll never look up to Him and ask for forgiveness. If we're never broken over sin, we'll never cry. We'll never repent. We'll never be made right with God. If God should mark our iniquities, and the imagery here is like an accountant or someone keeping a ledger here, writing them all down. If he should do that, who could stand? We all have things we've done that we're not proud of. We all have dark secrets that we want to keep hidden. And I don't know what yours are. But let's suppose that somehow I do. And I've got those down on a list. And I take that list of your sins and I place it on that bulletin board there in the foyer. How would you react to that? Would you still be sitting here right now? Would you get up and run back there and tear that list down? Would you run out the door in shame? Would you go back there and try to get the scoop on everyone else who was on the list? If you watch police procedurals on TV, law and order, things like that, they'll talk about a, a criminal's rap sheet, the list of every crime that he's ever committed. What does your rap sheet look like? Consider that if you break one of God's laws, just one, you are a sinner. You deserve condemnation. That one sin is all that's needed to condemn you. And of course, the truth is, we've all sinned not once. We've all sinned many times. And the nature of sin is even more comprehensive than we usually imagine. We think about the big sins, you know, murder, stealing, sexual immorality. It's bigger than that. It's bigger even than the, the minor offenses. We talk about them as minor, but the things we classify there, uh, lying or irrational anger or, or, or greed or gossip. The word most frequently used in the New Testament for sin literally means missing the mark. And the imagery is of an archer aiming at a target, and if he misses that target, not just the target, if he misses the bullseye, if he's not dead center, then he has missed the mark. That's sin. We're made in the image of God. That's our mark. As Christians, we're to reflect Christ. We're to grow ever more into the likeness of Christ. That's our target. That's what we're to be aiming at. So we talk about sins of omission, of failing to do the things that we ought to do. If we're not reflecting the image of God into the world, if we're not perfectly shaped into the image of Christ, you notice that bullseye there is perfection. If we don't hit that bullseye, we've missed the mark. That's sin. 
If you should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand, the psalmist says. The judge is seated here on the bench, and the accused is standing at the bar. A capital crime is there on the ledger. And the judge is listening to the evidence. He's noting every charge there and all of the evidence against the defendant. I want you to picture God sitting on a throne of inflexible righteousness, taking notes. His pen is in hand. He's listening to everything here, marking down every transgression against us. And it's all proved. Nothing is omitted. The evidence against us is clear. It's copious. It's overwhelming. It's more than enough to condemn us. And so the judge has no choice but to pass sentence. Death. Who could stand in the face of that? No one. There's none righteous. No, not one. But thank God, that is not how he judges us. You notice the psalmist says, with you there is forgiveness. Interestingly, this is one of only three times that that noun, forgiveness, appears in the Old Testament. And all three times, just like here, it's presented as an attribute of God. It's inherent in his nature. Forgiveness is what God grants to those who seek him obediently. When we're down in the depths of sin, when we're broken by sin, and when we cry out to God, He hears us and He forgives. I think about the words of the Apostle John, 1 John chapter 1, verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Forgiveness is part of God's nature, and he's quick to bestow it. And that's why we fear him, the psalmist says. This isn't fear in the sense of dread or terror. This is reverence. This is awe. See, we might tremble at the idea of God's wrath. Anyone faced with God's overwhelming power would, would tremble. They'd cower in fear. But God's love, that causes us to be aghast, agape in wonder, in awe. Think about the prodigal son, Luke chapter 15. What's the one thing that caused him to have his epiphany, that caused him to go home? Was it the desperate situation he was in? Was it the disgrace of poverty? Was it the famine? No. He went home because he remembered he had a loving father and knew that he would welcome him back. It's the same thing with the sinner. It's not fear that provides us with our motivation to ask for forgiveness. It's faith. That is faith in the sense of trust in God and in his nature. It's that fear, that reverential fear, that leads to obedience to him. It's not fear. It's God's great mercy that leads people to serve him. And because of that tremendous realization, the psalmist personally puts his trust in the Lord. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchman for the morning, more than watchman for the morning. 
The problem way down in the depths here is the guilt of sin. But the psalmist doesn't just want release from punishment. It's not fear that's motivating him, remember? He wants a relationship with God. It's the presence of God. It's the Lord himself that he's longing for. The poet J. Danson Smith expresses this well. I want to read this to you now. Waiting, yes, patiently waiting, till next steps made plain shall be, to hear with the inner hearing the voice that will call for me. Waiting, yes, hopefully waiting, with hope that need not grow dim. The Master is pledged to guide me, and my eyes are unto Him. Waiting, expectantly waiting. Perhaps it may be today the Master will quickly open the gate to my future way. Waiting, yes, waiting, still waiting. I know, though I've waited long, that while he withholds his purpose, his waiting cannot be wrong. Waiting, yes, waiting, still waiting. The Master will not be late. He knoweth that I am waiting for him to unlatch the gate. You see, that's the same confidence the psalmist expresses. We don't like to wait. We are impatient people. But this isn't like waiting at a restaurant for a table, waiting at the doctor's office for that appointment that was supposed to be 45 minutes ago and they still haven't called you back for. This isn't uncertain. This is an expression of complete confidence and trust. You notice the image here, a sentinel waiting for the dawn. He's sure that it's going to come just as inevitably as it's come every single morning in the past. He waits, and the dawn comes. That's what it's like to wait on the Lord. We trust in Him. He will appear. And finally, because of his own personal experience, the psalmist holds out hope for others. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with Him is plentiful redemption. And He will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. The psalmist may have still been down in the depths, but he didn't just care selfishly about his own situation. This made him aware of the situation of others. He's concerned about his family, his community, his people. God wants us to have the same concern. See, just like any good, faithful Jew, the psalmist viewed his own personal deliverance as a concrete example of God's love and his forgiveness toward Israel. He would see his own personal hope as a reflection of Israel's hope. He would see God's answer to his prayer as a reflection of the fact that God was trustworthy. He would work for his people. He'd see all those benefits that he received as confirmation that God would act for his people. And if that's true for him, how much more true is it for those of us who are in Christ? That mercy, that grace, that forgiveness that God extends to us, that redemption he extends to us that the psalmist talks about. He's eager to extend that to all. His steadfast love is plentiful. That is abundant. It's overflowing. You see, God not only doesn't miserly measure out our sins and write them all down on a ledger like in verse number 3. Instead, he's the opposite. He's generous. He's magnanimous. 
he erases, he blots out, he cancels all of the debt. He writes through that and it's as if it never happened. He will redeem his people from their iniquities, the psalmist says. And he has redeemed us in Christ. Peter writes, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18, You know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish, or defect we have been bought we have been purchased we have been redeemed through the sacrifice of Christ on the cross so you see this morning it doesn't matter how lengthy your ledger is what your rap sheet is like the nature of the sins that you've committed or how many there are we trust God we repent we're obedient to his will and he forgives us. He redeems us from all iniquities. He wipes the slate clean because that's his nature. As the Hebrews writer says, chapter 8, verse 12, I will forgive their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. I want to encourage you this morning. Don't flounder in the depths any longer. Trust in God being confident of his forgiveness. Cry out to him, knowing that you've been redeemed. Maybe you're here this morning and you've never turned to him. I want to encourage you to put your faith, that is your trust in Christ, to cry out, to turn to God in repentance, to be buried with the Lord in baptism and rise up out of the water, not only out of the depths metaphorically, but rise up with your sins washed away, being added to God's people having that blessing of redemption. Maybe you're here this morning, you already are a Christian, but you've turned from the way and you found yourself floundering in the depths again. You need to come home. Whatever you need may be today, if you need to turn to him for the first time or, or return again, if we can help you in any way, it's the Lord's invitation while we stand and sing.